This is Foreign, Domestic and Forbidden, a podcast about books and ideas. I'm Tim Trash. And I am Joaquin Lobo. And we'll be your host for the next hour. Joaquin, how are you? I'm fine. You know, it's a cold but not too cold day in Oakland, California. Um, it's good to be back. Good to see you. Good to see you. Um, we're recording on January 6th, so uh, we both got up early. I, we both listened to the president address the nation about the anniversary of the insurrection. So it's a little bit gloomy today. It feels uncomfortable remembering what happened last year, which was really strange because I think that was the first time in my life that I switched on the television to watch the certification of an election. I mean, that that was even a big press event was was really weird. And, and then to see how it devolved into this insurrection was, it was, was really, I, I mean, the, the term is heavily overused, but it was kind of traumatizing. And my wife and I were trying to do a dry January and that went out the window on January 6 because we were like screw that we need a drink right now <laughs> uh, it, it felt it felt really dangerous it felt it felt so very very uncomfortable and so that still hangs in the air it reminded me of 9/11 the collective trauma of 9/11 i i think that just like back in 2001 a lot of us felt you know sort of traumatized by the events of of uh, january 6 exactly a year ago it's interesting how we relate to to images i'm also thinking of the famous uh oj simpson chase you know those things that uh, that's very silly to talk about oj simpson and, and the insurrection but those are the things that we watch you know uh, as a as a community, as a nation, and somehow galvanize an entire generation um, and, and create these permanent memories. In the case of O.J. Simpson, I wasn't traumatized. I was just horrified by how pathetic we are in the U.S. In the case of September 11, I was definitely traumatized. Uh, and, and January 6, exactly a year ago, was one of those things that I wish. I, I was frankly surprised. I never thought that I would see something like that in, in Washington, D.C. And probably no one was ready to, to witness the level of um, how, you know, how, how low someone can, can go trying to, to make a case for themselves after losing an election. And that motherfucker did it. That was, that was something that he keeps doing. He was going to to give a public speech today to you know keep pushing the the big lie and he had to cancel because he I, I think he wasn't guaranteed a live coverage on TV and probably he didn't want to lose face uh, he decided to cancel but you know the the trick is to see what happens um two years from now 2024. Yeah, and, and also to think that a former president of the U.S. just endorsed Viktor Orban, Hungary, who's an autocrat and who says publicly that he's looking to China for his ideal of what a government should be, and that a U.S. president would endorse Viktor Orban is just, it's just unthinkable. <laughs> 
and and it's happening and people don't actually make a big deal of that when it really is a big deal and it's just it's crazy i mean the world is really totally crazy right now we were totally desensitized after four years of dealing with that and it's going to take a long time for us to get back to a sense of 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 you know what is the normal what the normal should look like should feel like but today you know it's uh, it's also a special day for us because um we have we have an an international guest remember that the name of the show is foreign domestic and forbidden so we have a guest that's connecting with us all the way from Mexico City, a dear friend of Tim Trash and myself, uh, great Mexican writer Mauricio Montiel Figueiras, who is a terrific poet, an incredibly insightful, exquisite essay writer, and a fantastic fiction, fiction writer, among many other things. He's a translator. He's translated the work of Lydia Davis into Spanish. He's, he's on so many things. He's a great film critic. And I don't know if he agrees with that term, field critic, but you know that's that's one of his many many titles. And I'm very fortunate to have him as our first guest of this podcast. That in a way uh, owes his very existence to the fact that Mauricio was kind enough to invite Tim Trash and myself about four years ago to a great, great five years ago to really great uh, international conference of crime writers in Mexico. And that's how I met my my dear friend Tim. So it's very special for us to welcome you, Mauricio, to, to our podcast. Well, thanks for having me here with you guys, uh, Tim, Joaquin. How are you? It's really nice to see you again. We, yeah, we, we, us three met as you just said, Joaquin, like five years ago in San Luis Potosí in, in, in Mexico. And uh, due to this conference that I helped organize with other uh, institutions. And uh, I knew as soon as I, I saw you two together that you were like kindred spirits. So I didn't, I, I, I wasn't mistaken. So it's really nice that you two got together this this project, and I first of all congratulations for this podcast. So it's uh, uh, it's it's really nice to be uh, your first guest. So I I, I I I want to do to do the best with my uh, to give the best of myself today. It's so good to see you, Mauricio. <laughs> you too. You too. Um, yeah, today we're. Um... We're, we're tackling a topic that I mentioned, I think, in our first or second episode, um, just jokingly, um, and that is, what is actually a good book? Or how do we make a judgment call? What is a good book to us? Um, how do we apply any standards? Is a good book necessar for us necessarily a good book? Well, what is this quote-unquote good book any longer? We, we don't really have a canon anymore. Literature has become much more diverse and, and very aware of the standards it has somewhat artificially imposed on the literary output of writers. And so 
literature is trying to rectify that and uh, university departments are struggling with it to to keep up and and get a sense of what these new standards should be if there are really standards of good writing uh, how do you make a judgment call on on a book that comes from people you might not know very much about and so instead of having this very westernized very male canon what can we do in order to actually invite everyone to share in the literature on equal footing and what does that mean to the books we teach at the university and so we can talk about a little bit about i think the the general standards if we have any if we think there are any but more importantly talk about the books that were important to us and that mean a lot to us that we think hold up or maybe not anymore depending on on which title yeah and mauricio do you want to start us off well yes um i was thinking about what you were saying about uh, this like academic canon at the universities especially in the in the us i think and um for me one of the one of the let, let let's see if i'm not mistaken by this uh, uh, observation or appreciation of mine but i think some of the uh, writing of contemporary writing in the us is pretty marked so to speak by the mfa programs <laughs> so I, I don't know if i'm mistaken but uh, this view and, and you know i i read um recently something uh, I, i'm trying to remember now let's see if it comes if it comes back soon enough uh i was reading something about how you can tell uh if one book was written under or by an mfa program or under an mfa program or, or an uh, an mfa undergraduate or after going through an mfa program and especially about i i i'm, I'm thinking especially about the sexual the sexual scenes, the erotic scenes, how there's a particular feeling about how uh, the sex parts of a book are written according to MFA programs. I, I don't know if you agree with this. For me, it's very provocative, this, this, this essay that I read, this article I read about this. And obviously, the uh, author of this article was making fun of the MFA programs. But I think this uh, ring of truth about what he was saying about this so i i don't know maybe this is the first like thing i would like to talk about with you guys yeah i, I, I that has been a very very heated debate um for some time um whether mfa programs have really led to um to conformist literature so by the rules um, by the numbers literature were not and i've read many very caustic attacks on the mfa and equally caustic uh, defenses of the mfa mm. but but there is of course uh, a, a kernel of truth in there in that if you have a program that teaches writing that you that you operate under the assumption that there are rules and standards that can be taught. 
And you have to somehow come up with those. What makes good writing? And, and, and the one phrase all students always learn right away is show, don't tell. And mm -hmm. it's, 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 this, it's this bizarre thing that is out there. And that has, of course, also some truth to it and all that. But, but basically, that is sort of the, the, the main ma mantra. And, and, and there are many more of these, these tiny kernels, and we all teach them. But then we look at really great writers, Haruki Murakami, for example, mm -hmm. and he does everything wrong in his dialogue, that, which I would cringe if a student did that. But in his fiction, it completely works. It shouldn't work, but it does. And, and so it's against all the standards that we, so the, the standard standards um, that we teach, and yet it works, and, and we can't account for that. And so I think if, if students come fresh out of MFA programs, they might still adhere a lot to this kind of standard advice that we're mm -hmm. giving. And someone... Uh, Porter Shreve, he revisited the University of Michigan when I was a student there. And he said it took him about a year or two to free himself from the MFA program hmm. and to not think about, oh, what will people say about this? How will people take this? But to become his own writer. And I think that's very true. And so if, when you see books published right after the program that were maybe partially edited in the program, you see you see the seams or, or the lack of seams uh, in the book. And then later on, I think it becomes more interesting and less, less a matter of making compromises to please the audience. I don't teach. I don't teach uh, creative writing. I teach literature, and I have avoided teaching creative writing because I I don't have an MFA, and I don't feel that I speak the same language as MFA faculty. And I, frankly, to be honest, had a lot of issues dealing with expectations of grad students, who you know for valid for legitimate reasons. After all, they were paying a lot of money for their degree. They many of them wanted to figure out how to get an agent, wanted to figure out how to get a big contract. And many of them um, didn't have a background, a serious background as, as readers of, of literature. So that was very troubling for me. But, you know, I, I as you were talking about this, Tim, I, I remember a line from a poem by Octavio Paz that said something like, deserve your dreams. And transpolating, I, I, I would, probably say something like deserve your readings and deserve your writing. I think that that not everyone should be expected to write the same type of fiction. Not everyone should be expected to write good fiction. Not everyone should, should be expected to read good fiction. Because after all, reading is such a personal act, uh, such an individual act of freedom. And I believe that that our needs are, are very different. Our personal needs are very different. And what's good for you is not going to be good for everybody else. Um, I used to cringe at people in airports or you know, at the BART station and buses 
reading what I consider at the time terrible books. And I no longer do that. I think that books have a purpose for some people and then they have a purpose for some other people. I mean, I find myself buying books because I like the cover these days. I find myself enjoying books that look nice. And I, you know, this is something that Mauricio can relate to because he's also an, uh, a publisher and he, he makes beautiful books and he knows how important it is to have a good looking book, right? To be able to make a good looking book, something that feels good when you open it, when you smell it, yeah. when you touch it. But the whole, the whole idea of a good book, I think I would probably change the idea of a good book for a, for a meaningful and important book for the individual. Because you're right, Tim, the canon is dead or should be dead. Yeah. If it's not dead, it should be dead. I, I cringe when I when I remember the devotion with used to read Harold Bloom many, many years ago. And that sort of prescriptive approach to literature, I think that we've gone long past that these days. We don't buy that anymore. And one of the things about post-colonial literature and multiculturalism and inclusion and diversity is that while you may not agree with that, it certainly helped to free many, many readers and to, to allow for, for the reader to, to, to approach literature in a more uh, personal, freer manner. And I, I really appreciate that. So in talking about important, meaningful books, I think that um, you can have as many important and relevant and meaningful books as readers uh, are in, 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 any, in any given cafe or in any given airport. And I, I like that better than the old idea of, you know, two or three older white guys telling us what to read and frowning upon uh, the titles of books that they, they don't approve of. Uh, for me, I, I was thinking that what makes that question, what makes a, a good book? I, I'm, I'm uh, recalling now this famous uh, idea by Italo Calvino, the great Italian uh, writer, one of actually one of my favorite uh, authors. And he said he was talking about the classics, what makes a classic book? And he says something like... Um, what is a classic book? A classic book is the one that every time you return to it, gives you new things. All the time you find new things in those books. So um, maybe a good book has something like that. It's a book that you can return to. And uh, every time, even if you read it only twice or only if you browse through your you know, underlining or your favorite passages, it gives you something new. For me, um, I'm now 53 years old, and I think I can, I can live with that idea of a good book because sometimes you don't know if a, a book is really good until you finish it, and even not until, until you finish it, but days after you finish the book, when it gets stuck in your mind and in your heart and in your and in your everyday routines, right? When or, you when suddenly, you it, or when you read it for the second time. Yeah, or, or when you find yourself like thinking in a special, I don't know, character or line of dialogue or a particular scene that 
comes back to you after, days after you have finished reading the book. I, I would agree with that, that um, if it's a good book, that you probably can read it more than once and get something else out of it. And yet, I also feel that there are books that you really, really don't want to read a second time but they're equally important, not necessarily because they're, it's, a good, it's a good book, but it's the book you needed at the time you read it, and therefore it's a good book to read. Like I have, I have one title um, today by Lewis Brumfield, who won two Pulitzers in the 1920s, uh, was a very famous writer at the time, a, a best-selling author, and nobody reads him anymore. I don't think many people know him at all anymore. And when I was 19, I was really bored. I was doing my civilian service in Germany. You could either choose to go to the army or do civilian service, and it was much longer, um, but that's another story. And I was bored and I looked around for books and um, there was a, where I worked was a metal closet and it had old books that nobody took out anymore. It was supposed to be a lending library, but they had stopped it. So they had a metal closet full of books and I grabbed one and that was A Good Woman by Lewis Brumfield. And I started reading that. And for me, it was, it was a moment when I really struggled with religion because I couldn't really see myself in religion. I had grown up Lutheran Protestant and the main character in the book is a missionary sent out basically by his mother um, to, to go on a mission with his wife. And he ends up in Africa and renounces Christianity as he was taught it. And I read that, and it really helped me in that moment to say, all right, yeah, this is not for me. You know, like, like the religion as practice, as I have experienced it, I, I can't see myself in that. Uh, in vain moments, I like to think that I'm a spiritual person, but like with Christianity, I, I, I was like, I, I, I can't, I, I just can't. Um, and the book was kind of, to me, very important to read at the time because I was okay there are other people feel, feeling that we're, we're, we're looking at something else and having this revelation about a, spir a spirituality beyond the Christianity taught at, in church. And, but the, 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 the catch is I, I recently got another copy. I, I've always owned a copy and rebought copies of that and they keep disappearing. The last of them burned, so I bought a new one. And I started looking for this passage that I remembered really well reading as a 19-year-old, and it's terrible. I mean, it's terrible. It's, 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 it's not only terrible, but it's sexist, racist. It's all of that. The, the moment at which this young man realizes that there's a world outside of what he has been taught, outside of the world he knows, like a, a vast world of new experiences, which for me was really this big aha moment. 
It's horribly written and it's, and it's terrible. And, and it, it's not trying to be racist, I'm pretty sure, but it is very blatantly so. And especially reading it in 2021 again and now 2022, it's terrible. I, I wouldn't be able to bring it to class and explain why I liked the book. It's, it's like, it, it, it's horrifying. It's really just horrifying. Um, so it's this kind of exoticism, the the racism that is sort of clads itself in 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 other garments, and it is maybe more benign on the surface, but it's just as deeply racist. But that, that's an interesting case because if if this guy won a Pulitzer surprise, that, that means that you know the book used to be good back back in the day, and that would mean that some some books have a due date. And they spoil. They they are no longer good once the due date, once they expire. And there, you know, something similar happened to me with uh, Ernesto Sabato and the book I I spoke about uh, in in our first podcast. That I went back to reread many years after I read it for the first time when I was a seventeen year old kid. And the writing was not as good as I as I remember it. What's going to happen with, you know, the the Pulitzer Prize of 2021 and 2022, 30, 40 years from now, people are going to think, what were they thinking? Mm-hmm. Why why did they consider this one, you know, a good book back back in the day? So there is this uh, this notion of of temporality that good good fiction is more a cultural construct rather than something intrinsic in 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 a literary work now if you're going to talk about a classic like mauricio did i think that there are a few good books that will eventually become a classic Mm. but you know how how soon can you determine Mm. the the identity of a classic even when people write reviews they say this is an instant classic uh, you've heard that many it's an instant classic. Like, why? How did you know? <laughs> so it's an instant classic. So it's going to be it's not going to be a classic in the next instant. Because it's this instant classic. Exactly. There are many instants. What in instant are you talking about? Yeah, but what instant are you talking about? From two months, three months, four months, one week? I mean that's exactly. that's an instant. Uh, uh, yeah, you you're right that. Uh, I, I was thinking one of the the authors that has uh, become one of my literary mentors is uh, also like Sabato from Argentina, uh, Julio Cortázar, and mm-hmm. um, he's a uh, he's a fantastic writer in, in 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 the whole sense of the word because he wrote great uh, uh, fantasy uh, short stories. And uh, what happened to Cortázar for me is that his novels are pretty you know out of date are, are are dated so i i few years ago it was one of the i don't remember exactly the anniversary of uh the launch of his Cortázar's most famous novel hopscotch is called in in english 1963 and 1963 right mm-hmm. right so it, it must have been in 2013 for the 50 years the half century of Hopscotch. So in any case, there was uh, one of the main newspapers, literary uh, uh, supplements in, here in Mexico, did uh, some questions for uh, some writers, me included, about how 
did we feel with hopscotch after 50 years? And I reread some, you know, I, I, I didn't reread of the whole novel, but I reread some passages. And I must say that I found it, as I said, quite dated and in some passages quite corny and quite, uh, you know, over overwritten. Yeah, it's cool to have been a young uh, man or a young woman in the 1960s in Paris listening to jazz and talking about, I don't know, Adorno and Heidegger and all that stuff. But it, in, in this uh, day and age, it seems quite boring. The dialogues are quite, quite boring, actually. But in any case, it has some passages, some parts that are brilliant. But what, uh, what happened to me with Cortázar's novels, it wasn't the same with his short stories. I think his short stories are not instant classics, are classics, period. Some of, of Cortázar's uh, short story collections for me are what, what a, a classic book means because they, they, they aren't dated. You can read them and I have reread many of Cortázar short stories many times, and every time I found something different in them. That's getting back to what uh, Italo Calvino said. That's what is cl a classic, some a text that always gives you something new, even if it's from two thousand years ago, fifty years ago. I don't know. So for me, uh, Cortázar uh, is one of my literary mentors. But I, I, I must say that. His novels. I, I, I don't. I, I don't. I'm not planning on rereading any of his novels, but his short stories are going to be with me the rest of my life. I agree, and that's also probably why we should acknowledge the wisdom of Borges, who kept his writing to poetry and short stories. He didn't dabble with uh, long fiction. He probably didn't think it was worth his time, mm -hmm. and I wish that Cortázar. I mean. You do what you want to do as a writer, but he, I, I totally agree with you. I don't think that he's a good long fiction writer. But this morning, Mauricio, you tweeted a long series of, of uh, tweets on a great Mexican short story writer, Juan Jose Arreola. What's, um, you know, just out of curiosity, would you, would you share with the audience your, um, your tweet handle? Uh, yeah, well, uh, it's it's in obviously in Spanish. I wrote it in Spanish, and and this uh, author uh, Juan Jose Arriola, he's from the state, uh, the same sorry, the same state where I was born, from Jalisco, and that's in the um, what's was that in the some coast of Mexico in the in the western coast of Mexico, and uh, uh, he was born in 1918. He died in 2001. And uh, uh, yeah, he mainly wrote uh, short stories. He, he as, as some authors say, he committed a novel. You know, they say that I committed a, a, a poetry collection. I committed a short story collection. And so he committed a novel. And uh, he's, he's a, it's actually a really good novel. But his short stories are, I think, or, or some of his short, some of Areola's short stories are in the same league as Cortázar's or Borges' stories. Uh, I, I call them, I mean, uh, Areola, Borges, and Cortázar, I call them the ABC of fantasy literature in Latin America. That's the ABC for me, at least for me. Areola and Borges actually uh, knew each other, 
actually met here in uh, in Mexico City many years ago. And uh, uh, I, I don't I don't remember if Cortázar obviously Cortázar met Borges, but I don't know if Cortázar met Arreola uh, somewhere in time. But in any case, it was I, I didn't know that I was going to be. Uh, talking about Cortázar here in the podcast today, I was going to talk about another other authors, but now that you mentioned uh, Joaquin, this great uh, Mexican author, I don't know if he's translated into English actually. Yeah, there is an edition that's mm -hmm. called Confabulario and Other Inventions, and you can get it on Kindle. Okay. So people should go and get it. It's a really amazing okay. Mexican okay. author. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, apart from the uh, lineage that links with, links Arriola with uh, Borges and Cortázar, there's also this Kafkaesque undercurrent in all of mean all of uh, the best Arriola stories. Uh, so you you can you can you can tackle that influence almost immediately. He was a great reader of Kafka, and that. That you can notice that in his in many many of his short stories. So there's a, a recommendations for the audience. Juan Jose Arreola is really a great. Uh, he's also a classic, a Mexican classic, a permanent classic, not just for one instance. For not just instance. for one instance. No, no, he wasn't into into instance into instant uh, uh, classics. But you you were also uh, I were also saying that you were going to talk about that maybe we can we can. Take this uh, this last part of the of this episode, talking about books that maybe somehow saved our lives. I I, I mean that's a, I, I know that's a really tricky subject and that's a really tricky question. But I as as soon as Joaquin told me that we were talking about uh, this in uh, today, I I started thinking about uh, what books saved my life somehow in some way. And I, I have two of them, and I remember exactly the uh, period of my life in which I read them. One, the first one is Paul Auster's uh, The New York Trilogy. I, I, I read it in 19, exactly in 1994, be, uh, 1995, because that was when I got the job offer for coming to, from Guadalajara, my hometown, to Mexico City. So for me, the sense of alienation and uh, how do you how, how do you call us? Yeah, the, the alienation and strangeness mm -hmm. of uh, the characters in in this uh, that I consider the three. Uh, you know, I, I I think Paul Oster hasn't surpassed himself in this trilogy, and, and that's actually I mean he has a lot of great books afterwards. That those were these are his first three, yes. but. I, I, I think he tackled something, he touched something in these three books that, that really appealed to me at that time in my life. And I have reread, especially the first one, uh, City of Glass. I have reread that book um, maybe five or six times. And I have taught that book in many workshops that I have given, reading workshops. So that's, that's the first uh, book that so to speak, saved my life. And the second one is from uh, another one of my mm. uh, favorite contemporary authors, yep. W.G. I don't know, Tim, do you say Siebald or Zebald? I would say Zebald. Uh, okay. But here in America, I think people usually call him Siebald. So Siebald. I, yeah, but 
since since he did write in 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 German, German. Uh, I always call him Sebald. Yeah. Sebald. Okay. So this is his first book. This the third Sebald book, Vertigo. It's comprised of four uh, parts. And I read this book when I uh, uh, when I had this first uh, separation from the mother of my daughter back in twenty. 2001, that's the year actually that Zebel died at the end of, of 2001. And I remember reading Vertigo uh, at the hotel where I was exiled for a whole like month and a half when I uh, went out of my house for different uh, uh, troubles that I was having. And uh, I somehow it's really strange because it's a really gloomy and dark book as all of Zebel's work. But I somehow found some, I don't know, some spirit of tranquility. I can say that in, 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 in reading about this uh, depressed uh, character, very close to Sebald, although he's not Sebald himself, uh, like running around or walking around, walking around, not running around, these uh, strange landscapes always like pursued by depression. So I, I remember these two books, as I said, from this specific periods of my life. And they, yeah, in some way, they, they saved my life. I don't know you, if you have uh, these kind of books that saved your life, quote, unquote. It's, it's funny, actually, that you should choose Paul Auster, because I love Paul Auster, especially his early work. His later work is, is weirder and mm. um, seems watered down to me at, at some point but his early work is is marvelous and and the new york trilogy is just it's just gorgeous uh mm. love that it's it's funny how how the books i think that that saved my life are usually bad books <laughs> um <laughs> and um for example, in my 20s, I read only crime fiction, and it didn't matter how good or bad it was. I read a lot of very good crime fiction, from Deshiel Hammett to Dorothy Lee Sayers and, and all those. But they really kept me alive in a way of... I wasn't ready for literature, really. Um, I, I found book, like literary books to be insufferable because they were always sort of going for the big themes. And I just, I wanted to to look at people, observe people, but I didn't want to be constantly asked to be an active participant. I wanted to be sort of a detective in a novel, just go stake out the people, do my thing, and then get my paycheck and get out of there. And and so so that I think really saved me until I found. Um, and that's sort of going to be my other book uh, that I mentioned today, Immovable Feast by Ernest Hemingway. And in many ways, that's a very lame thing to say, because I think a lot of people got turned on by Ernest Hemingway and some like to, to a certain kind of literature. He was also a much better short story writer than he was a novelist. Um, he shares that with the writers you mentioned. Mauricio, um, but but a movable feast wasn't even published in his lifetime. It came out posthumously. I read it because I had been to Paris, and in the library in Berlin, 
I saw the title and it's been translated very differently in Germany because there is no movable feast, a term for that in German. So they called it Paris Ein Fest fürs Leben, like a feast for life, um, a celebration for life. Um, so it's a little clunky. It's not the best translation, but it was the only way to make that clear. Um, but I, I saw the title and I was like, oh, okay, I'll read it. It's about Paris. So that, and that really got me into the whole lost generation, modernists, uh, modern art. Um, and that was for me, I think the first time that I saw that a book was actually crafted. Until then, I had always looked at texts as these seamless things basically God pouring out words onto the page through the writer. And I had never, had never seen the brush strokes. And with Hemingway, it's very clear that he worked very, very hard to make his sentences exactly this way. And to me, that was exhilarating. It was just so beautiful to suddenly see someone at his work. You can still see him working while you're reading the story and that that's part of the fun. I came very late to that. I mean, everybody knew of that already in the 50s and 60s probably, but to me, that was a very, very new experience in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And so I was, I was just thrilled. And that got me really into, into writing as well as reading good books, literary books, and not be afraid of that, but, but to engage not only on a level of involvement in observing people, but also having a more active exchange with the characters in a book. So that was Hemingway, yeah. How about you, Joaquin? I've had many, many books that saved my life, but I, I believe that they have been changing as I have changed in the process of growing up. I had the books that saved my life when I was a, a teenager, a very young man, um, books that affected me profoundly when I was in my 20s or in my 30s. I remember going from these dark novels written by Ernesto Sabato, El Tuna, and Don Heroes and Tombs uh, when I was 17 or 16 to Juan Garcia Ponce in my 20s, I read a lot of great Mexican. Uh, someone else who wrote good, good short stories and good novels. He was good in, in, in both um, types of, both modes of, modes of writing. To Grant Green in my 30s, um, to Philip Roth in my 30s and 40s. And then I realized in my 50s that I've been reading man most of my life. And I look around my bookcases and I saw that 95% of the titles, many, many hundreds of books were titles of books written by men. And that didn't feel good. I felt that I, that I had been somehow unfair, that I had been excluding uh, many, many important writers. And I didn't even realize that that was happening at the time. So lately I found myself searching for women writers, um, targeting women writers as uh, 
those um, you know friends that I that I want to know those ideas that I want to explore. So I I sort of came to the conclusion when thinking about this question that the book that is going to save my life is the book that I'm going to be reading tomorrow. And that somehow keeps me wanting more, keeps me hoping for something better. I just read a couple of books written by Argentinian women. One of them is called Exquisite Corpse, Cadaver Exquisito. Um, another one is called Teoria something, but you were reading a book by her, Paula. Her name is Paula Caralocho, but she has a nom de plume, Paula Oxarolic, something like that. And you were recommending one of, one of her books, Tim, on Instagram. Um, Installation, yeah. Exactly. So, you know, they're, they're really good. And then I read Mugre Rosa by a woman from, from your wife, Fernanda Trias. I think that's my favorite book so far. Mm. And my, my sense is that I'm going to be finding more books like these because these, you know, these are books written by women who are younger than I am, women in their 40s, women in probably in their late 30s. So I have a lot to look forward to. And that's just women writing in Spanish, right? So you have people, women from Ecuador, Monica Ojeda, uh, Mariana Enriquez in Argentina, a lot, a lot of women who are getting a lot of exposure. So I feel that as a reader, I have a lot of, lot of things to look forward to. But also thinking on, about this, this question, Mauricio, I realized that probably it's not books that really saved my life, but music. I was telling I was telling my wife the other day that when I die I'm going to miss music and not books. You know, I, I if I if I have some kind of conscience when I die, yes, I'm gonna say fuck, this sucks, I'm dead. But I'm gonna I, I'm not going to be saying, oh God, I miss my books. I'm going to be saying, shit, I don't have I don't have music. This is going to be a very lonely, lonely trip into nothingness because I I won't have you know, music to keep me company and to keep me sane. And I know that, you know, you, for instance, you love movies. I don't know if for you it's going to be movies or it's going to be books. Tim, I don't know what's going to be for you, if not books. What is it that you're going to miss? One thing I also want to bring up is sort of the, the good book that is a good book because it's it's written by somebody who is not a writer and they're coming up with ways of solving writerly problems in totally unexpected and strange ways. Um, and so I want to mention the book by Chris Krause, I Love Dick, which is largely autobiographical um, and Chris Krause falls in love with a college professor, Dick, and she and her husband start writing letters to him and trying to involve him in this passion she feels for this man she has only met one afternoon. And they are trying to make sense of the situation, and he is in very unwilling playing partner. He doesn't want to really have anything to do with it. And so they go into very high gear to 
make sense of the situation and to live with this odd passion she feels. And that is also, of course, threatening her marriage. Chris Krause was a filmmaker at the point when this happened uh, to her, uh, this episode. And, and you can feel throughout the book this really super strange and, and new way of putting together plot paragraphs, pages of the book and making sense of that. And to me, that was, again, really a revelation because she doesn't write like a writer. It's, it's beautiful. It's really gorgeous. And she, I mean, she's of course a writer because she's written this book, but, but it's not in the, in the at least North American way of putting together the novel. And so she puts a lot of art criticism in it, thinks about her own art of how to make art out of this project. And to me, it was just riveting. Like, again, like the same thing I saw back when I was in my 20s in Hemingway, I saw again in Chris Krause's book, there are all the seams and they're open and she doesn't care about them because she needs to get somewhere where a normal treatment, a normal writing of the book can't get her. And so she finds her own way. And that was really, really cool. I love that. That reminds me, Tim, of two books that really opened my changed my understanding of how to write fiction. And one of them was The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera. And the other one was The Lover by Marguerite Dura. And when I read these two books, I, my first reaction was like, oh, shit, can you do this? You know, can you write an essay? Like in the case of Kundera, can you write an essay in a novel? Can you, can you, can you do all these crazy things that I, I never saw anyone before in Kundera do. And that was an absolute revelation, first as a reader and then as a writer. And the same thing with Marguerite Dirac. Can you write, can you write this kind of poetic prose in a novel? Can you just write poetry? Can you, can you talk about your body? Can you talk about sex? Can you talk about your memory? Can you shift from first to third person? And in a way, you know what you're saying about this book, of course, Kundera and and there are established writers, but it is as if they wrote these books as non-writers. Like they, they allow themselves this incredibly, uh, you know, uh, sort of degree of freedom to come up with very, to me, what were very, very original and, 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 and revolutionary kinds, kinds of writing at the time. Mm -hmm. Well, now that you were talking about uh, female authors, I just uh, yesterday finished reading uh, what I think is a really, uh, uh, not only a good book, but an excellent book called uh, Based on a True Story by mm -hmm. uh, French author uh, Delphine de Vigan. Mm -hmm. It was actually made into a movie by Roman Polanski, but I haven't, I, I, I decided not to watch that because I, I, I decided to read the novel first, and I, I don't know if it's. I just said a novel, but I, I don't know if it's a, if it is a novel. I, I don't know. I don't know what is that book. It's a really uh, problematic, but in a good sense, a really problematic book because it puts into uh, it's it's. Uh, I mean, it's disturbing, but sometimes alarming. 
because of the reactions of the main character who is called as the author of the book. So it is sort of like a Russian doll of, of a book about what is the, the truth inside fiction. Does fiction need to carry some, some sense of truth or it doesn't need that? What is the, the fiction pact with the readers? The, 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 the fiction, yeah, the fiction pact with the readers. So it's pretty for us who, who somehow who, uh, will devote ourselves to writing most of our time. It's pretty unsettling. It's a pretty unsettling book. And uh, I'm not going to spoil for you or for the audience uh, the whole story. It's about uh, the double, the doppelganger. It's a, a new, a new way of of tackling this this classic subject. And uh, at at the, I, I haven't um, last night when I finished this book based on a true story, I found myself almost yelling, like with with I, I know did you know with how. It's a beautiful, unsettling, smart book, and how she pulled this off with me as a reader. I was like, oh my God, she pulled this off with me. <laughs> Actually, she pulled this off. And it's tricky and it's uh, like a like a death trap for 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 us authors. And it's an amazing book. It's a beautifully written, uh, um, as I said, quite disturbing, quite dark. And and it's about what I just said, it's those fiction has or needs to carry some sense of truth or if it doesn't need that. Mm -hmm. I don't think the film is as good. I didn't feel like that at the end of the film. Oh, you, oh, you already watched the film. I, I, yeah. I'm glad that I didn't <laughs> watch it. <laughs> now, now I'm going to look for the for the, 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 the book is just, uh, believe me, it's just amazing. It's an amazing book. I think it's time for us to start the FDF list, try at your own risk, recommendations of books, eats, uh, movies, awesome coffee shops, anything, anywhere in the world you want to <laughs> recommend. Mauricio, do you want to start us off? Yes, of course. Uh, book. Okay. There's another book who not... I don't. I wouldn't say saved my life, but it changed my life and, and my 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 idea of what a book of a what a short story collection should be, and that's Winesburg, Ohio by Sherwood Anderson. That's mm -hmm. uh, a classic book from 1919. Actually, this more than a hundred years. It was written more than a hundred years ago, and yes, you were talking about Tim, the Lost Generation, Hemingway, and so on. But for example. I think Hemingway, especially Falk, William Faulkner, was were influenced by this book, by this book by Sherwood Anderson, and and I think it's it's a it's a it's a truly amazing and challenging book. And for me, as I said, it changed my idea of what a short story collection should do. So it it's for me it, it's a it's a, a before and after reading Winesburg, Ohio by by Sherwood Anderson. And as for films, I uh, yesterday I watched a, a tremendously uh, politically incorrect film that I loved called Red Rocket. That's the, the new film by this uh, great American filmmaker, Sean Baker. 
he he did uh, previously Tangerine and then the Florida Project, which are films that I love. And this is his newest one, Red Rocket, about this porn star falling disgrace, and it's all it's all messy. Uh, but what he did, what he does with his life when he finds out that he's no longer in the in the porn industry. So it's an amazing, beautifully shot, uh, uh, beautifully written film, but pretty. Uh, I, I love that film because it's pretty politically incorrect because it, it deals with the relationship with a, a, an old man, this, this ex-porn star, and, uh, and an underage girl. You know, I, 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 I know it, it's going to cause some shock in some viewers, especially in the, in the atmosphere which we're living now. With all this political correctness, but I loved. Uh, I, I strongly recommend Red Rocket and, and the performance of of the the actor Simon. I don't remember now his name, uh, but he who 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 does this ex uh, ex porn star is amazing. It's just you you know it's that kind of film that you, some part you forget that you are watching a film. It is so good that you just forget that you are watching a film, just like you are into the story and into the narrative and. You know, when it on, oh yeah, it was a film. It is fiction, and that for 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 a film and for a cafeteria or a restaurant when you come down to Mexico City, I will tame and Joaquin. I think he 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 knows that dive that I love in 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 my neighborhood called La Capital, like the capital, and it's a really amazing dive with uh, new Mexican food, so to speak and great uh, cocktails and drinks. So th those are my three recommendations. Winesburg, Ohio by Sherwood Anderson, uh, Red Rocket, the film by Sean Baker, and La Capital in Mexico City. Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Joaquin. Very quickly, uh, Licorice Pizza, fantastic new film by Paul Thomas Anderson. I feel like that, Mauricio. I, 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 I was trying to figure out if I was inside the movie because it's a film set in the 70s. You know, I have those, those characters have the age that I had back in the day. Um, I'm going to recommend music. If you have Spotify, do a search on Daniel Badenboim, the great piano uh, player conductor from Argentina, who is one of the amazing, most amazing interpreters of, of classical music for the past 50, 60 years. It's amazing. And try to find a recording with Jacqueline Dupre playing the cello and Daniel Barenboim playing the piano. It's just amazing. And, um, and, and a TV series that I'm watching right now that is absolutely fantastic called The Capture. It's, Tim, you're going to trip. You have to watch The Capture uh, on NBC, on Peacock. I don't know if you have that access to that streaming service, but it's it's just unbelievable. One of the best series on surveillance, uh, dystopian type of, of contemporary reality we're living these days. Check it out. How about you, Tim? In music, I have... I stumbled really across them and it was it was funny i list I, I i get i have spotify so i get this discover weekly so they put together 30 things they think i might like and recently i heard the song and i was like oh wow that's really cool 
And I started sort of listening to the band more, and then I realized that it was a Berlin band from the 1980s. And then I felt kind of really weird about that because that seems too typical. But um, anyway, the band is Pink Turns Blue, and their first album is just totally awesome. Forget it. The rest isn't bad, but the first album is really like their their best, and it's it's... If you're into 80s music, it's just wonderful. Um, Eats, there is, if you ever come to the village of Bodega here in Northern California, uh, which is where parts of The Birds was filmed, if you get there, stop at the casino, you get the best cheap cocktails there and amazing food. Every evening, there's a new outfit cooking, and the food is just out of this world. Wonder, wonder, wonderful. So that's the casino in Bodega. And in television, Vincenzo. It's a Korean drama about a mafia consigliere moving back to Korea. He was given mm -hmm. away as an orphan grew up in Italy, became a mobster, and he's moving back to Korea and mayhem ensues. And what really fascinates me about Korean television is that the genre barriers we have for Western or especially American television, they don't seem to exist. Uh, sometimes they veer into pretty violent thriller then into soap opera into romantic comedy they veer in and out of the genres as they wish and as they please there are episodes that follow some bizarre subplot and then come back to the main plot an episode later but the whole still holds together really well and it creates an entirely different form of watching television than at least what I'm used to. So Vincenzo, very, very cool. 16 episodes, I think. There's only one season. Thank you, Mauricio, for coming on today. It's so oh, wonderful to see you. Thank you. Thank you. It was, it was great to see you guys again. And I will recommend an, an album just to, you know, be with you. And uh, it's called The Boy from Michigan. Oh. by john grant it's oh. i mean i think it's an amazing piece of of, of music and of, of lyrics it has uh, uh an anti-trump song that lasts for about 18 eight minutes and it's really strong and uh, moving piece of music i i I'm trying to remember the name of the song but it's it's included in the boy from michigan uh, that was from 2021 john grant amazing musician so thanks for having me here and uh, the best for you and for the podcast in for the podcast in 2022 yes i just want to let the listeners know that we're going to be sharing some information on mauricio's books on our social media so those of you who read in spanish will have the opportunity to to go to kindle and, and read some of his amazing work gracias yes. mauricio Gracias. Thank you. And all the books we mentioned will be in our show notes. Happy New Year once again. And the music we're playing for the intro and outro is 
Coney Island Train Blues by Springtide via the Free Music Archive. Have a wonderful 2022, everybody, and we'll be back in two weeks. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>